Um, the first reading comes from Luke chapter 12, verse 1 to 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 1 to 12, and I'll read. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and, that, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, and after have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the, man, the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The Gospel of the Lord. A reading from Luke 12, 13 to 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, 
and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money brags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The Gospel of the Lord. Our Father, uh, as we, uh, we turn to you, as we look into your word, uh, we ask uh, for your spirit to guide us. We ask that uh, you would uh, give us uh, clarity, clarity about ourselves, clarity about who you are. Um, we ask that, uh, that you would enter into uh, the deepest parts of us and, and change us. Um, so we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. We are continuing on in our journey through the story of Jesus' life as recorded by Luke. You can turn to it in your service sheet. Uh, it's about one long reading that's been split into two, and, and we'll be looking at both of these readings, which are from the beginning half of Luke chapter 12. We'll mostly start out in that, that first uh, half and then move on to the second, but if you were with us last week, uh, you'll recall that we left off with Jesus at a party with a bunch of religious leaders, and he was making them extraordinarily uncomfortable, even angry, as he was exposing their love of power and of fame and of wealth. Their love of these things had actually blinded them to God's character and his mission, to the point where they were actively leading the resistance against Jesus, leading astray those to whom they were supposed to be caring for and guiding. And Jesus turns this observation about the religious leaders into a lesson and a warning for his own followers, his own disciples, warning them and us that we are extraordinarily susceptible to the allure of power, wealth, and fame. But Jesus is never content with just pointing out danger or highlighting injustice or exposing hypocrisy. Jesus wants to get at the root of what we do and why we do it. And that's what he's doing in our passage this morning. He's digging down into the deepest part of our souls and exposing what is there. When we peel away the wealth we've accumulated, the status we've achieved, the position we are promoted to, However extravagant or modest that may be, what's left? What's buried underneath? What drives us? Jesus wants to expose this, but not expose it to degrade us or belittle us, but to make us aware of it and to see how the presence of God, when we're reconciled to him through Jesus, makes all the difference in the world and in the world to come. So what I want to propose this morning is that in our passage, once Jesus has peeled away all the armor we've built through our pursuit of fame or wealth or status, we see Jesus exposing fear as the thing that most often than not directs our lives. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at, at fear. What is fear, the cause, the purpose, the remedy? And then we're going to look at uh, how does fear show up in our lives? And what do we do about it? 
Every year at the beginning of the year, uh, I make a list. It's a reading list. I look back at the last year's reading list, and I see how many books I managed to read that were on it, and how many I added to it, and how many I read that were not on it. And uh, for some reason, this list never really seems to get any smaller. Um, in fact, it gets bigger every year. I always start out um, always with an overly ambitious reading plan that by about this point in the year has completely derailed. Uh, usually it's the discovery of new books that derail it, and this year is no exception. This year what derailed it, uh, it was a rabbit trail of biographies and memoirs. And this month, past month, I've read two. The first is called Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm. If you don't know who Jay Dilla was, uh, you're not alone. But you've probably heard something produced or influenced by him, regardless of if your musical tastes are hip-hop, jazz, classical, pop, or you've just watched The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon on occasion. He's had that much influence, um, at least here in the Western musical world. The book traces the development of modern musical rhythm styles alongside the life and in the wake of the death of Jay Dilla, born James DeWitt Yancey from the east side of Detroit. The second book that I read, a memoir, was Spare by Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, fifth in line to the British throne. <laughs> I think most people uh, know who he is, right? Um, he's the red-headed guy on all the magazines when you're standing in line to check out at the grocery store. Now, both of these men have had their fair share of struggles and controversy, often played out in very public ways, of which I'm not going to go into the details of. But I bring them up because as I read the details of both of their very, very different lives, what struck me was the place that both fear and anxiety played in their lives and in the lives of those around them. That and the amount of marijuana and alcohol that's consumed by people. But maybe, just maybe, these things are not unrelated to fear and anxiety. I realized uh, just how much fear drives us, no matter if you're from Detroit or Buckingham Palace. You may be a hip-hop legend, you may be the king of England, you may be flying Apache helicopters, or you may be hiding from those helicopters. You may be just struggling to do your laundry and, or to make ends meet. But fear and anxiety, it seems, are basic to human experience. In fact, in our passage in Luke, fear is mentioned six times and anxiety four times. But when Jesus mentions them, uh, it feels like, like we're going all over the place. Don't fear that. Fear this. Don't be afraid. Why are you so anxious? Fear not. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can throw you into hell. Like, make up your mind, Jesus. Um, like, like, I think you're actually making me kind of nervous and anxious. Uh, <laughs> but, but interspersed between all these statements are, are expressions of God's care and his goodness and how much he values us and wants to provide for us. So what's going on? Well, let's try and figure out what he's saying. Throughout Luke chapter 12, Jesus moves back and forth between talking to his disciples and speaking to the thousands of people that have gathered around him. 
He first talks to his disciples in verses 1 to 12, and he starts talking about fear. Verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. All right, well, it makes sense that he would start talking to his disciples about people who want to kill them. After all, he is on his last journey to Jerusalem, where he will be crucified, and the religious leaders have just begun in earnest to try and trap him. But what an odd way to try and prepare his disciples. Verse 5 continues, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Wait, what? Like, don't, don't be afraid of those people who want to kill us. Um, be afraid of the one who can throw you into hell after he has killed you. Thanks, Jesus. Um, like, I, I think I feel, I feel better now. What, what's going on? But immediately, though, Jesus pivots into a comment on how much God values us and an exhortation to fear not. Verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and are not one of them, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. What's going on here? Well, I think what Jesus is doing is reorienting what our understanding of fear is and what the purpose of fear is. Here's what I mean. Uh, earlier, earlier I said that, that fear is basic to our human existence. Right? I, I didn't just pull that out of Prince Harry's or Jay Dilla's life, but I get that from the first book of the Bible, specifically uh, the book of, first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Uh, if you're familiar with that book, uh, and you think back to one of the first major events after God creates all things, uh, you end up with what's often referred to as the narrative of the fall of humanity. Adam and Eve, the first humans, disobey God's command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result of that act of not trusting God, which is seen in doubting his goodness and his care, and his concern that goes down even to the most basic things, such as what we eat, not trusting God and taking things into their own hands, they experience a rupture in relationship. They're cast out of the garden. They're cut off from the presence of God. They're set at odds with each other and with the rest of creation. But of note is that their first reaction to the presence of God after disobeying him is one of fear. They hide from God because they're afraid. They realize they're naked. Now, fear is a, an emotional response that we have in ourselves that alerts us to the fact that something's not right. It's not safe or it's beyond our control. We feel vulnerable or we're exposed. Fear is not a completely negative thing to be avoided at all costs. In fact, fear's close cousin anxiety is not either. They're emotions that have a function. They're part of what it means to be created as a human being. The problem occurs when they are distorted, when they're blown out of proportion and they rule your life. Fear has a proper place in life. So does anxiety. But they're poor masters and their offspring are the more visible vices of greed and covetousness and wealth all of which Jesus will return to later on in our passage. 
See, in our passage here, Jesus is untethering fear from lesser powers, those who can only kill the body, and realigning fear with the one who holds ultimate power and authority, not just of life and death, but of judgment and our eternal state of being. We're told to fear the one who has true power and authority, God. But fear, when it's properly oriented towards God, is not merely existential terror, but it's this awe and reverence that, to be honest, may not feel all that different than other forms of fear. If you think about it, pretty much everybody in the Bible who has a close encounter with God, they end up flat on their face. They, they cry out, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. They end up not being able to eat for days. They start lamenting their sinfulness. They're undone in the presence of God. They're terrified. And we start to see throughout scripture that ever since Adam and Eve did their own thing, disobeyed God, thought they knew better than God, and the relationship between God and humanity and creation was broken as a result of their selfishness, that this awe and reverence is mixed with fear. This fear is screaming out that something isn't right. And it makes us want to hide. It makes us want to hide from God hide from others, hide from ourselves. We run away from God. We sabotage relationships. We hate our own bodies, right? Like, like maybe God made a mistake with this. And it's in this space that Jesus steps in and says, fear not. This is God stepping in and saying, don't be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows that are sold for next to nothing in the market. God remembers all the birds. He knows how many hairs are on your head. You are valued. You are loved. You are not a mistake. And we see the full expression of this in Jesus bearing everything that we fear on the cross. Rejection, pain, suffering, abandonment, death all the effects of sin. Jesus takes this on himself, and in doing so, he reconciles humanity and God. And he opens up the door to a life not ruled by the fear of death and rejection. He doesn't take away the awe and the reverence. He takes away the existential terror. So what is fear? On the one hand, it's our natural warning signal that something's not right. On the other hand, it's awe and reverence that is the proper response to God. These things, though, uh, they, they get mixed up together and disordered uh, in our life, and it shows up as over-the-top fears and anxieties when we look away from Jesus. Sometimes these fears derail our lives. Sometimes they're hidden as the driving factors behind our successes. Either way, we need Jesus to sort out what is what and fix what is not right. But yet, uh, we are still faced with a choice. Do we acknowledge Jesus or not? That's what it comes down to. Do we really fear God or do we really fear people? And that is what Jesus continues to draw out next. Verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. This whole section is a bit of a back and forth. If you acknowledge God before other people, he will acknowledge you. If you deny Jesus, he will deny you. But then it shifts. 
You speak a word against Jesus and he'll forgive you. Yet the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I can tell you, uh, as a pastor, I've had more people ask me about this state, uh, this passage in a state of anxiety than any other passage. Interestingly, uh, Jesus seems to anticipate this because he immediately tells us not to be anxious. Specifically when we're brought before authorities, those who have the power to kill. And remember the context here is the authorities are trying to find ways to trap Jesus and to do away with him. And Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will give us what is needed in the moment to defend us. God's greatest gift to us is himself. It's the Holy Spirit. Fear, unhinged from the goodness and love of God, drives us away from him. The Holy Spirit is God's presence with us, the counselor, the comforter, the seal of our salvation. We often get hung up on the line about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit here, but it fits with the back and forth flow of the whole section. To blaspheme is to reject, to walk away from the forgiveness that Jesus offers and the gift of his presence with us, to be ruled by fear. And fear, it, it, it's not about this existential dread that God has it in for you or has some twisted delight in your misery. It's simply about what, what, what is controlling you. What is controlling what you do? Are you fueled by fear and anxiety? Or are you driven by the deep-seated love of Jesus that shouts, Fear not! I've defeated death! I've overcome the world! As my wife uh, put it when I was trying to explain my sermon to her, she said, To fear man is to reject Jesus. And she summed up everything I was trying to say. So, <laughs> talk to her! <laughs> um, finally, Moving on from this, uh, Jesus starts to draw connections between fear and anxiety to what we do. Specifically, he does that in terms of what we do with our stuff. How do we know when fear and anxiety have grown beyond the healthy bounds of functioning as warning signals that something is wrong and are now ruling our lives, putting us at risk of denying Jesus? And on the flip side, is there evidence that we are being faithful to Jesus? Well, take a look at what you do with your stuff. Your money, your home, your time. Jesus actually gives us a parable uh, as he's trying to explain this. Uh, now, a parable is simply using a story as a method of teaching that draws out of the listener what's already inside of you. Right? It helps reveal what's in your heart and um, it can spur you on to greater devotion toward God, or it can harden your heart further. This parable keys in on two things. That uh, if they're present, they are evidence of an unhealthy fear and anxiety gripping your soul deep down. They are covetousness and, a, and an obsession with comfort and security. Our parable is set up by an argument between some people in the crowd that surround Jesus and his disciples. There's two brothers there are engaged in a family dispute over an inheritance. Um, we don't know many details here. We don't know if their fathers recently died and they're settling the estate or if they're just looking ahead to the day when that will happen. It would appear that one brother is getting the inheritance, probably the older brother, given the culture at the time. And the older brother, the other brother, has taken issue with this. 
So they do what would seem to be completely normal in that time, take the issue to a rabbi, a respected teacher, and ask him to settle the dispute. So they go to Jesus. Jesus' response, though, is strange. In verse 14, Jesus says, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? At first, we may, may think this is dismissive, but, but Jesus is using this as a teaching moment. He's drawing them in to look deeper at why they're even having this controversy in the first place. The irony is that Jesus actually is the judge of us all in the end. And our parable is going to lead us in that direction. And we'll all be held accountable for what we've done with all that we've had on this earth. So Jesus is waking up these guys. He's trying to get them to see that the matter at hand is even more serious than they think it is. It's of eternal importance. He goes on to say to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so here we come to the first way that an unhealthy fear shows itself when it comes to what we own, what we want and even what we may want to pass on to our families. Covetousness. Covetousness, uh, that's a word I don't think many of us use these days. I think of it as a combination of selfishness and greed. In fact, many Bible translations uh, use the word greed here instead of covetousness. Greed, right? I see something and I want more of it. I want it for myself. I don't want to share it. It's mine. It doesn't matter if I need it. Covetousness is focusing greed on what other people have. Right? I want my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Does it matter if I need it or not? That's besides the point. I want it. I may even think I deserve it. Jesus draws out the selfish aspect of covetousness through this parable. He tells them this parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Did you notice how many times the rich man references himself in this parable? What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. I will tear down my barns. I will store down all my grain. I will say to my soul, me, 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 me. There's nobody else in this parable until God shows up. All right, so the first bit of evidence that uh, an unhealthy fear is driving us is covetousness, uh, this combination of selfishness and greed. The second bit of evidence is closely linked. It's an obsession with comfort and security. We accumulate things to provide a sense of comfort and security. We see this drawn out in the parable. The rich man has land that is very productive. We're told it produces plentifully, in fact, it seems to have produced an unprecedented amount. He can't even fit the whole harvest of grain in his existing barns. So what does he do? Does he look around to see if anyone around him is in need? No. Does he think about all the workers that he would have employed to help harvest such a plentiful crop? 
No, he doesn't think about them. No, he's just thinking about himself. He's proud of himself. He even has a little conversation with himself. Soul, look how much stuff you've got. We made it. We're set for years. It's early retirement time. We, we got to build some bigger barns to fit all this, and then I can just kick back and relax. Eat, drink, and be, eat, drink, and be merry. So we see all this selfishness and greed are leading somewhere. It's feeding something deeper than just accumulating stuff. Underneath the greed and the selfishness, there's this desire for comfort and security. And these things, comfort and security, easily become idols in our lives. The things we replace God with and give our lives over to. In short, the things we fear. Now, in one sense, comfort and security aren't bad things. Right? There's something good about having your basic needs provided for and not having to worry about things like food and shelter and clothing. Stuff does matter. But it can be a really subtle shift from being contented with those things as gifts that are provided for you by God to thinking we're entitled to these things because of our hard work or business savvy or social status. See, the rich man in this parable is really rich to begin with. It was not uncommon for people to have land at this time and in this place. And in fact, land was a sign of God's blessing to his people, going back to God's promise of leading Israel into the promised land. But not a lot of people owned vast swaths of land with multiple barns and had the resources to just tear down the barns and build new ones. This is a different level of affluence. Kind of reminds me of how many buildings get torn down in New York City and then just rebuilt back up. Jesus, in telling this parable, is deliberately emphasizing the wealth here, playing it up so that when God shows up, it hits pretty hard. The man who is rich to begin with is kicking back at the golf club, cold drink in his hand, calling his assistant to book a reservation at the fancy new restaurant in Midtown. And for many of us, uh, this is a picture of what it looks like to have made it, right? Like that's what we're going for. But this guy leans back and God appears. You fool, time's up, your soul's demanded of you. Time to give an account of what you did with this fabulous wealth. Now, fool carried a different weight to it back then. We tend to think of a fool as kind of like a simpleton, right? Somebody who's just bumbling around, getting into trouble because he's not too bright. But fool is a grave insult. In the Bible, it refers to someone who acts without thought or regard for God and without the wisdom that entertains the possibility of judgment or destruction or accountability for what's been entrusted to us. Now, for many of us, it's easy to distance ourselves from such an over-the-top wealthy guy because we don't have such ostentatious wealth. We might be surrounded by people like that, but that's not me. Well, we don't know how wealthy these brothers were that were squabbling over their inheritance, but... We all have things that we latch onto that give us comfort and security and hope. We all have things that are easier to spend money on or to hold on to, the things that we fear losing. But part of Jesus' point is that it actually doesn't matter how wealthy you are, we're all at risk of being directed by these motivations. And when we're directed by these motivations, uh, we can actually find really deceptive and innovative ways to be selfish and secure comfort. And the question that comes of this is, what are we doing with whatever it is that we possess? 
And so we move on to my final point. As opposed to greed or comfort and security driving what we do, which is often grounded in our fears and anxiety, Jesus points us to another way of life, a life of generosity, living out life from a foundation of security and love. We skip down to verse 32. Jesus is addressing his disciples again, and he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide, for yourself, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When we turn to Jesus, we're reducing fear and anxiety to their proper place, alerting us to what is wrong rather than driving what we do. And we're freed to be generous. We're freed to be generous with our money, with our time, with our homes, and with our relationships. We're free because we're resting on the generosity of God, who gives us himself. He gives us his presence, his Holy Spirit, to equip us in whatever it is that we face. A few minutes ago, uh, we sang uh, these words that I'm going to leave you with, uh, which is a bit of a challenge for us uh, based on Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, blessed is he that hides in him. Oh, fear the Lord, oh, all you saints. He'll give you everything. He'll give you everything. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.